Before we begin, a heads up that this episode contains the sound of gunfire and stories which some listeners may find upsetting. So, welcome back to Falklands 82 Stories from the South Atlantic. I'm Ben Coley, and this episode is a little bit different. We're going to be hearing from some Falkland Islanders who experienced the conflict firsthand. We didn't know whether we were going to be shot or taken away. I cannot remember to this day what my first words were to him when he said, it was my bombs that got you. Maybe it was just another day in a broadcaster's life. But when I look back now, I think, wasn't I fortunate to be the man there that night doing this job? Pilots all fancy themselves, don't they? <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, they invited all our skills down to a party at the airport in Stanley. And, oh, they're the most boring bunch of bastards you've ever run into. Oh, hi. So one of the girls picked up a case of toilet rolls the way home we went. And I've never f- felt so secure, you know, sleeping on the floor surrounded by fully armed SBS guys <laughs> with, <laughs> with their guns, you know, loaded and at the ready. <laughs> If you remember, I spent six months in the Falklands working at the BFBS radio station there. But some of my colleagues have spent several years living and working alongside the military and local community. My boss, Ginny Carlin, spent two and a half years out in the Falklands from 2017 to 2020 and enjoyed it so much that when we were planning this podcast, we asked her if she'd like to go back and do some interviews. She literally bit our hands off. So in this episode, Ginny's going to talk us through her trip and introduce us to some of the characters who had some stories to tell. Ginny, you know everyone in the Falklands, don't you? Well, it's quite funny you say that, Ben, because I hear that they're having a platinum jubilee for me as well soon. I don't quite know everybody. There's still a few sheep that I've not come across yet. And why is it that you like it there so much? I think I think because it's just so beautiful, it's remote, all the reasons you probably love it as well, Ben. The people are amazing. It is it's just a really unique place, isn't it? It is, and you're right, the people are so fantastic. So tell us about your trip. Well, I was really lucky, Ben, in April to go down there for a month and just chat to people. I did an awful lot of chatting, to be fair. I did an awful lot of driving. I did an awful lot of eating cake, you know, the old smoko, and a lot of drinking tea as well. But managed to get some of the stories from people who I got to know and people I already knew, friends from down there, about what happened in the conflict and, and their memories and recollections of it. Tell us a little bit more about who you spoke to. Right, okay. Well, let's start with Tim Miller, shall we? Tim owns Stanley Growers, which is where everybody gets their fruit and veg from. Uh, There's not much fresh stuff grown on the island, as you know, Ben, but Tim and his missus, they grow stuff. It's called hydroponically. Yeah, that's not a word I've heard of before, Ginny. When you say they grow hydroponically, what does that mean? Well, I didn't know what it meant either, Ben, so, (laughs) so don't worry. Hydroponically basically means that... There's no soil, so it's it's like a it's like a weird lab setup <laughs> using just water, but it's it's just amazing. Anyway, back in '82, Tim was living over on Dunners Head, a settlement on the west. There was a handful of people living there, and it got an airstrip, which, as you know, Ben, you know, an airstrip's really useful if you are an occupying force. Tim puts the kettle on for his morning cuppa, and guess what? Yep, the RAF turn up to bomb the airstrip. I was sitting in the kitchen waiting for the kettle to boil and the nine o'clock BBC World News to find out from them what was going on over the hill 60, 70 miles away, so to speak. And I had suddenly heard the roar of jets. So 
I just rushed outside to see, well, whose is it this time? Ours or theirs? Our bungalow was just off the end, less than 100 meters away from the end of the main brass airstrip, to be confronted by two RAF ground attack um, harriers, very, very low at about 50 or 50 odd feet or so, coming straight towards me. Oh my life. And, and the harrier, with its wings that are drooped slightly, angled slightly down, when they're coming at you head on like that fast, by God, they're an evil looking aircraft. Mm. <laughs> And each one had three black blobs hanging underneath it. And said black blobs suddenly dropped off. And then everything went up in sort of, you know, explosions and flame all over the place. So those black blobs that Tim speaks of are two 1,000 pound bombs. It's obvious that the RAF don't realize people are living there. They've offloaded a bunch of explosives on the airstrip, a lot of which have gone awry. Everyone's running around, pooping themselves. Tim's almost taken a direct hit. Luckily, in direct line between me and where the bomb exploded was our, what in those days we used to call our, our meat safe shed, which is a very solid little timber garden shed built of hardwood timber, one inch thick. That apparently was sufficient to deflect enough of the explosion to stop my lungs collapsing and so on with, the, right. with everything else. And also it absorbed a heck of a lot of the shrapnel. But not quite all of it. So I found up and I found I was sort of, you know, one eye was sore and I couldn't see out of it and it was, and it was blood was sort of pouring out of it. And I had some blood around, around my wrist and also up on the top, top of my head where another little piece of shrapnel had, had gone in. And the sort of amusing bit about it in a way was the program on the radio about burn injuries. And I had a red St. John's Red Cross ambulance book manual. Okay. And I'd been reading that and I'd rushed out with it still in my hand. So it was a case of, oh, oh right, okay, which page do I now need to turn to? <laughs> I love this. Obviously not because of Tim's injury, like, but there's that stoic British dark humour from Tim, which only continues. There is, and I think all things considered, he's certainly staying positive. So what on earth did Tim decide to do after he picked up his injury? Well, obviously, they need to radio to the doctor at Stanley. Ben, listen to this. From a very early stage, I had made my mind up that, that I had gone. Right, yeah, OK. Yeah. We then had another sort of slightly amusing session because <laughs> the generator shed was OK, but there's a big pole only a few metres away from where the bomb had hit. That was still standing. But of course, the, the blast had shredded the insulators up at the top of it and broken the wire. Right. So who had a head for heights and who didn't? <laughs> I was the only one that had a head for heights. <laughs> <laughs> so Muggins here with one eye bandaged up. and you know, I was the guy who had to go up the ladder and get the damage repaired. While I was doing that, the bombers got a direct hit on the little farm store there. Where, of course, we keep it mugs in the store there. There also, there was some shotgun ammunition and some .22 rifle ammunition. And the .22 ammunition all started to cook off in the fire. And so all of a sudden there was ping, ping, ping. Where so my two brave mates at the bottom of the ladder rapidly disappeared. <laughs> 
left me up at the top with little bits of lead coming up past me ears every now and then. So, as they, they did say afterwards, it probably wasn't one of their finest moments. <laughs> it's like a comedy sketch, isn't it? It's like, oh, I'm in such a bad way. I've got a radio for the doctor who's on another island. There's hostile forces around me and the radio is US because the bomb hit it. I think I've lost my eye, but it's okay. You're a bit scared of heights, so I'll go. And then they leg it and they leave him up there. It's not an everyday situation, I guess, is it? What was their escape route? Well, bearing in mind that round two with the Harriers might happen any moment, the people who live in the settlement decide to go up to the next farm, 30 miles away. It's called Charters Farm. That's everyone, including the dogs. It's all a little bit daring do, mate, you know, having to cross the water at night and stuff. Tim's been in touch about his eye and he's been told by the military, mate, We'll try and get you, but, you know, there's a war on. Tim hears from his brother, who arranges to come over to Hill Cove in a boat to get him. The plan being that at some point he's going to get some medical attention. And also that his brother has got some friends. And when I say friends, I mean special forces friends. I was driven over to the shepherd's house where he, uh, nearby where, where my brother was able to come to with his boat from Keppel. Also from Fox Bay, they'd managed to get sent up to Hill Cove a map of what Richard Cockwell was reasonably sure was the Argentine minefields around Fox Bay East. And uh, Sally Blake had that hidden at the bottom of her hencorn bin. (laughs) (laughs) It's real resistance stuff though, isn't it? (laughs) So that was dug out. (laughs) And uh, so we went over there, met my my brother, and sure enough, he did have a friend on the boat with him. Guy from the from the um, special boat squadron, right? <laughs> and he had he had he had a house house full of them back on oh. on Keppel Island. So I went back and with the map that this, this chap had a, had a good look at anyway. And I've never f- felt so secure, you know, sleeping on the floor surrounded by fully armed SBS guys <laughs> yeah. with with their guns, you know, loaded and at the ready. <laughs> I love that bit. I can almost feel how safe he felt. And also, hiding a map in the bottom of a chicken coop, how good is that? Oh, it's pretty good, isn't it? Now, Tim is taken to the SS Uganda. He's also taken to Ajax Bay and he's seen by the late, great Surgeon Captain Rick Jolly. All of the medical staff say the same thing. He's lost his eye, which Tim did say at the beginning that he kind of knew and that he'd accepted it and that he'd moved on with it. Anyway, liberation comes... He's taken back to Dunnershead, and one day he hears this. A helicopter arrived. You got used to them arriving. You're just checking up. Everybody okay? Anything you need? And this sort of thing. And these RAF guys started to get out of it in, in RAF uniform and grabbing their holdalls and that sort of stuff. So, oh, and we could see that two of them were obviously looked like pilots. And as they came up to us, one of them said, "Is there a chap here by the name of Tim Miller?" And I said, "Yes, that's me." and sort of took a step forward. Whereupon Flight Lieutenant Mark Hare promptly took a step back and explained to me that he was the guy that had got me. And as he said, he said, I took a step back afterwards. He said, because I wasn't too sure what your reaction was going to be. He said, I thought it might be beneficial to me if I was out of range of that, he said. So you've got to swing at him. Swing on at him, yes. But I cannot remember to this day what my first words were to him when he said, sorry, it was my bombs that got you. But I distinctly remember even 40 years on, he was carrying a 
good old standard RAF bluey grey canvas hold-all that was going clink clunk in a very nice glassy alcoholic sounding manner. My favourite sound. Though. Yes. <laughs> and so that night we drank the bottle of wine, probably far too much of a nice bottle of scotch that he had as well, and refought the Falklands War and became good friends. <laughs> and he came to he subsequently came to Jan and I's wedding. Mark Hare sadly passed away last year, which is incredibly sad, but what an amazing friendship. A great story there from Tim Miller, as you say, Ginny. Who else did you speak to? Trudy McPhee. Let me tell you, Ben, I thought I was a strong woman until I met Trudy McPhee. She is a firebrand. Listen to this when the Argentines turned up at her farm looking for the boss. That night we got home and the next morning they... uh come in the helicopter, big Chinook landed out here, jumped out on the green, submachine gun, pointed on the house, and these big fat officers come up and there was a fence out there, and I said, oh, you can either come over the fence or through the gate. And in Argentina, the woman's about 20 steps behind, and he said, oh, I'd like to speak to the boss, please. Who, who's the boss? No, no, it's me. So they took everybody's names and said if we would help the British in any way, our families would suffer. And he said, we're going to search your house now. Well, hang on. Two things are going to happen first. You're going to leave your gun outside. You're going to take your boots off. So this young fellow took his boots off, left his gun outside, come just walked around the house and ate again. I can always remember my mum was standing outside and she said, if they come here and plant a flag, she said, I'll just rip it down. And my dad said, well, I'll probably shoot you. I don't care, she said. Uh, she was a strong lady. So Trudy is a sixth-generation islander and her, her partner and her son look after four farms. It took me ages to find it, Ben. It's called Brookfield. I was just kind of pointed in the right direction. It's in a beautiful place. When I got there, I'd never met Trudy before. Uh, she threw her arms around me. I took some cake up for her. Uh, she then berated me for taking cake, showed me into the uh, into the front room, which was just full of cake that she'd made. So I, I kind of got told off for that. But what a woman. Anyway, um, she was telling me the story about this guy called Terry Peck, who I've heard about in quite a few of the Falkland Islanders stories. Now, he heard that the Argentines were after him as he has some SF connections, that are special forces, obviously. He somehow is able to speak to the coming task force and he asked Trudy to get people and vehicles together to transport rations, supplies and troops over the mountains where the Argentines are bedded in. So there were 22 of them in the group that helped the Brits. Can you imagine all those kind of wacky racist vehicles that they could find? But then again, I guess if Trudy McPhee asked you to do something, I would think it's hard to say no. And we got to the Estancia and the first day we took 600 up the mountain, brought 600 down for respite. And then we had to go to TI to pick up the paramedics as a bit of a marathon. And every morning we used to take rations to A, B and C company. We used to take water and ammunition and drop them off at all the different locations. And then in the afternoon, there were six of us. We used to have to take the advance party as far as we could in the night. And we'd stop there and they would go off. And then that's the only time you really got to sleep. And then when they come back, you'd drive back, you know... I sometimes think people must think, you know, you're just talking a lot of rubbish because, you know, we drove all around those mountains. We had no headlights. We had no lights whatsoever. Just amazing, wasn't it? 
That's seriously impressive, but also so scary driving around those mountains in the dark. I mean, we're talking total dark, Ben. We're talking no headlights. We're talking no dash lights, no brake lights, no nothing. But before we go any further, Trudy talks about Roger Patton. That's major at the time, Roger Patton, who was 2IC of 3Para. And Hugh Pike, who was at the time Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Pike, commanding officer of 3Para. This next clip... It really moves me, Ben, especially the bit where the CO gets in the car. And, uh, of course, by after a fortnight, I'd sort of cottoned on that, you know, the more pips you got, you'd get more important. Because to me, everybody's the same. And Hugh Pike came and got in my Land Rover. And I said, why did you get in with me, Hugh? Now I'll have to go first. And his words were, well, things are getting serious. We mightn't all come back tonight. And I thought it'd be nice to have a bit of female company. So we trundled up as far as we could, dropped them off. I said, good luck, Major. He said, you should join the military. I don't think he was a Major at the time. He was probably one down or something. <laughs> or I might have said Colonel or something. <laughs> yeah. So away they went. Then we had to go back to the Estancia. And Roger got us all in. And he says, things are getting serious now, Trudy. You're not allowed to take anyone else with you now. It's just going to be you. I want you to write a letter home because if you don't come back, we can give it to your parents. Now, that was a bit hard. Yeah. I just sat down and thanked my parents for all they'd done for me, and I loved them very much, and I knew they were worrying, and I was sorry that I'd caused them this worry, but I just had to do it, and, you know, sealed it up and left it there. So Trudy and the team were working day and night to get supplies and troops up the mountain. I just love how Trudy and the top brass speak to each other. I got to know Roger Pat because he was a 2IC and he used to send his runners to find me because I said, why me? Well, you're the only woman here, so it's easy enough for the blokes to say, go and find a woman. And I mean, I'm still good friends with him. Did you sort of make good friendships with the guys as well? No. What, what do you mean was the Paris? Mm. Well, you know, you, you think of this. They've got hard hats on, they've got cam on their face, they're on a mission. Mm. They're in and, you know. Mode. What, what's the bloody woman doing here? Oh, is that what they were like with you? Well, one of them was. Yeah, One night we'd taken a patrol forward. And he says, what's the bloody woman doing here? Saving your ass." <laughs> no, bet he thought you cocky cow. Yeah, that's one way of getting your point across. So, Ginny, what sticks out to you about this story? All of it, Ben. All of it. I, I know Trudy was just furious with the Argentines for invading the islands. I, I would have been too, but would I have volunteered to lead a convoy on foot to guide vehicles across a minefield over Mount Longdon? Probably not. Roger came around and he said, he said, Trudy, do you know who would be a good guide to walk in front of the convoy? Because there was um, 14 BVs, six tractors and nine civilian Land Rovers. So it was quite a convoy. And I said, well, I'll do it. OK, he said. And I said, the reason I'm going to do it is that I don't want to get bogged and hold the convoy up. So I was this side of the vehicle and a paramedic was that side. And he gave me a pair of white gloves, which I wore behind, I had to walk behind my back. And the first rover followed my, my ass. And we carried on and they opened fire on us. And the drill was to get away from the vehicle. Then they said, well, you've got to carry on because we've got casualties now. And you could stand on landmines or booby traps. So that's not very friendly, is it? And these two guys come out of the dark and said, who goes there? Ooh, I was very pleased to see they were powerless, I can tell you. 
five in the morning we went back through to, you know, where the headquarters were, where Roger Patton was. He says, Trudy, what are you doing here? They'll probably shoot hell out of it in the west of here. Oh, I said, thanks a bunch. So as we left, we're going back around these peat banks. They opened fire on us. And the guy driving said, do you want a fag? I said, just stick your fag. Let's get out of here first. Ginny, did you get the feeling from Trudy that she was scared at the time? Well, I did ask her about that. And I asked her about how her family felt about what she did. And we got back to Stanshire at seven. And it was my mum's birthday. So I drove over and... We walked in and she just, oh, that's the best present I've ever had. Because she said if I got shot, she knew I wanted to do it, so that's how it is. But my dad was always worried they'd rape me, but he never said anything because that would, you know, worry my mum. Did you ever think about that? No. (laughs) Never thought of it. You must have felt scared. Oh, the only time I had a bit of a twitch was when we were coming around, they were mortaring us. I just thought, let's get my bit close. Mm. And, you know, it's just how it is. It's how I felt. Honestly, Ben, put my hand on my heart and say this. She was not one bit scared. Now, after the conflict, Trudy flew with 847 Squadron, taking out supplies to the islands, and she credits this as a time of decompression from the conflict. She received a commendation from the leader of British forces at the time and also a medal from the Paras. And for Trudy to be so composed with all of this danger around her, I think it's so admirable. And surely we could all learn a lesson from how she handles these difficult situations. Listen to this, though. Honestly, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I love Trudy. She has no filter. After the war, the Harrier pilots, you know, the pilots all fancy themselves, don't they? (laughs) Of course, you know, they invited all us girls down to a party at the airport in Stanley. And, oh, they're the most boring bunch of bastards you've ever run into. Oh, so one of the girls picked up a case of toilet rolls and away home we went. <laughs> so, Ben, did you visit Goose Green when you were in the Falklands? I did. I did a day trip there. I still remember the long, bumpy drive that you make from Mount Pleasant Complex and you follow the signs for Darwin and then eventually Goose Green, which is on East Island. And it's such a quaint little place. It's tiny and it was so peaceful when I went. The idea of a conflict being there is pretty tough to envisage. Absolutely. So the next story is about what happened at Goose Green. So remember that we heard in episode three all about it from the military perspective. Well, John Pole Evans was in that village hall and he was just 10 years old. For some background, John and some other families moved out of Stanley to Goose Green for safety. I guess a little bit like the evacuees in the Second World War. Anyway, things didn't go according to plan. On the 1st of May, the Vulcans bombed Stanley Airport early in the morning and the Argies got the wind up and they moved all the helicopters and everything from up on the airstrip closer to the settlement so that the British wouldn't attack them. But then the British did attack and they attacked the airstrip and blew up some of their planes and fuel dumps and things. And the Argies were convinced that we had, or some of the locals had guided the British in. So they came and rounded us up from the house. Everybody had to get out of the house. They were shouting and going on. I was trying to get my shoes on and this one Argie whacked me with the gun to make me hurry up. So I ended up outside with one shoe on and one shoe off. 
And from there we were chased off to the hall, supposedly for a meeting, and we were put in there and we ended up in there for a month. Ginny, when John says we, how many people is he referring to exactly? So that's the whole of the settlement, Ben. 119 men, women and children crammed into that village hall. Oh, it was horrendous. The first day or two we had no food. Then after that they started letting them go to the store and get some food. And some days some of the women were allowed to go across to the farm galley and cook meals. But there was never enough food. I can remember being really hungry as a kid and my dad if we all got half a slice of bread each or whatever, that he would split his slice in half and give half to me and half to my sister and he would go without. But, like, we shouldn't have taken it. We should have let him have some. But as a kid, when you're hungry, you don't even... If you're allowed an extra quarter of a slice of bread, you'll eat it if you're that hungry. And, yeah, water was an issue. Some days we had water and some days we didn't. The toilets started blocking up, so then there was no running water. You couldn't flush the toilets. So we were using buckets for toilets, and there was no toilet paper. All sorts of things. It it was quite horrendous. The parents got us all into groups, like sleeping groups. So at night time, we always slept in the same little bit of floor. Like, each family had their own patch, in the hope that if a bomb hit, we would die as a family, rather than parents from one family and kids from another. And that was the same through the day. Whenever there was air raids or anything, we had to, as soon as there was an air raid happening, we had to run back to where we were supposed to sleep so that we were all accounted for and all in our family groups. I feel so sad when John talks about the bread and he remembers this all in quite a lot of detail. It's obviously something that stuck very closely with him throughout his life. That really moved me as well, Ben. Uh, The next bit, I asked John if he thought at any point that he was going to die. This is not an easy listen, Ben. Yeah, you just didn't know where the next shell was going to hit. I mean, like, we could hear the bombardments and you could feel the the ground shaking as the, the bombs hit and stuff. You just didn't know where the next one might go. Plus, they said they would shoot us, and we didn't know whether they would or they wouldn't. Like, they could have done that at any stage. There was nothing we could do about it. We had to get lined up one day, and, like, we were all standing there and sort of either waiting to be shot or whatever, and then they said, no, get back in the hall. So we had to go back in. But, again, like, we didn't know whether we were going to be shot or or taken away. I mean, even as kids, we knew they were killing thousands of their own people. I mean, all through the 70s, they killed tens of thousands of their own people. And, like, for us, there was no reason why they shouldn't shoot us. They'd done it to their own people. And that was the same military government that was now in charge of us. Do you think it had an effect going through that on the rest of your childhood? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the person that you've grown up I guess so, yeah. You appreciate things more, knowing, like, having just about lost every single thing we had, Mm. you appreciate stuff and yeah it never goes away it's always in the back of your mind i imagine for anyone who has a gun pointed at them it would be a real life-changing moment but for john to be staring down the barrel of a gun as a child that's just gut-wrenching absolutely ben and something that really stuck with me was john's wife rachel telling me that when john was lined up with the other children there was a little girl there and she was saying Shoot me first, because I can't bear to see the others die. That that was just incredibly moving. 
that's awful unimaginably awful is there any good news from any of this at all well one month after being taken hostage in there liberation it was amazing the battle lasted for a couple of days so we were under the floor for those couple of days and we weren't allowed like you couldn't get out from under the floor we were under there for safety so like then we were using the corner as a toilet like if you needed to go you had to go to the one corner and then when the battle finally stopped we came out and I can remember we were like standing outside the hall and the British were coming into the settlement it was an awesome feeling yeah I mean I say good news let's not forget Ben that 18 British servicemen lost their lives in the battle for Goose Green a long hard battle fought over two days at the end of which the Goose Green residents were able to leave the village hall and go back to their houses A lot of those houses had been really messed up and I'm going to leave that to your imagination, Ben. So floor space was at a premium as the Paris who remained had to stay there too. Listen to this, Ben. This is really heartwarming. I can remember we went to Tony and Jenny's house when we eventually did come out of the hall and I can remember sleeping on the floor and this para woke me up in the middle of the night he was going back out to do a duty or whatever, like he was going back out. He woke me up and put me on the sofa where he'd been sleeping because I was on the floor. But everybody was sort of jostling for a bit of floor space or a bit of sofa space because all the troops were coming and living with us. And how is John doing these days? John is a top fella and his wife Rachel is just lovely. They're both keen that the story of Goose Green is never forgotten and I know that John does go back to the hall. I know that he took some friends of mine over there to tell them the story. I can't help but wonder, Ginny, was there any chat about the Argentine losses? Well, we did have a discussion about how obviously the Argentines lost people at Goose Green and John was showing me some pictures in a book uh, showing some Argentine bodies that were laid out. And I did say, you know, I, I wasn't there, I feel, but I feel really sad seeing that and sad that those soldiers would never get back to Argentina. And, and John kind of felt the same and we had a discussion about it. And the thing is, they want them home. Like, they don't want them to be here. No. They, they want them back home. Exactly. But the Argies will never accept them because their argument is is they're buried on Argentine soil and they're staying here. But those poor families are stuck with never ever getting their, like their sons or husbands or whatever back. Never have an enclosure. Because as far as the IG government is concerned, they're in the Malvinas and they can stay there. And some of them don't even know whether they died in Argentina or whether they came here. No, because like, like the fact that they were killing thousands of their own people if you had a relative that got disappeared the month yeah. before they invaded yeah. and you never heard of them again, is that because they shot him in Argentina in that march or did they stick him on a boat and come here and then he got killed in the April? You don't know. No. And they don't know. So we go east from Goose Green, about an hour and 20s drive back over to Stanley. Tell me, Ben, what do you know about Patrick Watts? Ah, yeah, the legendary radio presenter. Well, we heard some of Patrick's story back in episode one. We listened to that terrifying audio of the Argentines with guns in the radio studio, forcing Patrick to broadcast the Argentine national anthem to the Falkland Islanders. I just think, though, Ben, as broadcasters, this guy 
is the OG. <laughs> Patrick was a station manager at Falkland Islands Broadcasting Service and he's as sharp as a tack. Something that really struck me when I was talking to people about uh, the Argentine invasion was that people would say, oh, we didn't really know. We did some rumblings about Argentina, but we never thought that they would attack. But Patrick, well, because of his job, he's kind of getting all the intel. He's talking to embassy staff and Argentines. He's at the coalface. And he's saying to people, look, this is the reality. And this is, like I say, because he's got the intel. He's left thinking... How do I look after my kids, my mother, my island, really? It's the whole thing as well for me of the embassy staff saying, if they invade, we can't do anything. I can vividly remember this minister being asked what would happen if the Argentines ever decided to, I think the guy used the words, walk into the Falklands. Mm. And he was pretty emphatic in his reply. He said, you know, logistically, we can't come down here to help you. You're too far away. It just wouldn't happen. So we really felt, well, we will be high and dry. But nevertheless, we didn't appreciate that General Galtieri, who had overthrown another general in Argentina uh, and was a military dictator, would actually progress to the stage where he would even consider invading the Falklands. Although I was in Argentina in January of 1982, and uh, some friends said to me, you know, you need to be very careful uh, down there because um, this chap, General Galtieri, is promising us that he is going to uh, have the, the, the Malvinas, as, as the Argentines call it, back in our hands um, before the end of the year. And my friend said, I, I think he's quite serious about it. And I remember returning and I went to government house and I spoke to the first secretary and I told him what my friend had said. And he poo-pooed the whole thing. He said, no, no, mate. He says, all right, we got our man in, in the embassy in, in Buenos Aires and he's keeping an eye on things and he's not given us any reason to believe that uh, there's any possibility of them coming in and taking the island. So that was it. But I, I still didn't think it would happen. So it was quite a shock on April the 1st when uh, Governor Rex Hunt told me that it was an invasion was imminent and it would be by daybreak the next day. And of course, as time goes on, the whole thing just rises to this big crescendo. Patrick is front and centre. There's just no sugarcoating it. I was interviewing Rex Hunt, the governor, on a daily basis to, to get updates for my news programme about what was going on in South Georgia. So it was a great shock for me when I turned up at Government House about four o'clock on the afternoon of the 1st of April to see a whole set of gloomy looking government officials, local government officials who I knew, walking out of Government House without even acknowledging me. And when I went in, Governor Hunt passed me this famous telegram as it was in those days, uh, from the Foreign Office saying, you know, we have every reason to believe that an Argentine force is on its way to the Falklands and they're likely to arrive by dawn. And the famous line at the end, make your dispositions accordingly. Yeah, I remember in episode one of this podcast series reading that telegram out. I mean, it's a rubbish situation all round. Patrick's at his station, not at home with his family. Sir Rex is realising that there's nothing he can do really to protect his people and his islands. I mean, things were not a bed of roses at Government House, were they? He broadcast to the population that... It was a very grave situation. Around about two o'clock in the morning on the 2nd of April, he declared a state of emergency and... Uh, I then realised that it was real because I kept thinking all the time the United Nations, Ronald Reagan, the United States president will put pressure on Argentina to to, to actually stop and, and turn around. But 
it, it didn't happen. I had two, two young children, aged 10 and 11, two daughters, very worried for them and my widowed mother. Uh, but I had to stay on at my, on my post. Uh, the governor basically ordered me to do so and I had no choice. I never put up my hand and said, I want to be the man to be on the radio tonight. Uh, I just did what he told me to do. Uh, and it just went on from there, really. There's something very patriotic and proud going on there, Ginny. That's what I'm picking up on anyway. Do you know, Ben, that really moves me that bit. I think the respect that Patrick has for the governor and his fellow islanders, yeah, I am staying here and I'm going to do my duty. We lost contact with the governor. We had a fancy set up. We lost contact. So every transmission from him afterwards was done with me holding the telephone earpiece up to the microphone and opening up the, the fader. I, I was scared stiff. I mean, absolutely scared stiff until I opened the microphone up and started talking to people. And then I, I, I like to think it might sound a bit ostentatious, but I think my professionalism as a radio broadcaster then came through because I, I suddenly forgot about the fear. And it was quite crazy. All I wanted to do was produce a good program for the listeners, reciting information that the governor had already told us. And the people were amazing. They they responded. I mean, you know, they put their lives at risk. They were ringing me up on the phone. And it was the old Magneto telephone. So they had to go through the telephone exchange and then ask the telephone exchange operator to ring the radio station. I mean, let's not forget the lady who was running the telephone exchange that night, Ben. I, I mean, it must have all just been terrifying, just waiting for this occupying force to come in. What can you do? You can hear there's a gunfight going on at Government House. Patrick said to me, I didn't bother locking the door. What was the point? It's like, it's going to happen, you know? Uh, so he played music like Mantovani, Joe Loss and his orchestra, all those kind of long-playing orchestral songs. I'm just imagining it's a bit like when the orchestra kept playing when the Titanic went down. Anyway, at nine o'clock in the morning, Argentine forces arrived, and so did that iconic quote. I could hear them before I could see them. They, they were noisy. They were very exuberant, excited. They really felt that they had achieved something. I felt I got nothing to lose here, and I was very angry and upset about the fact that my islands had been invaded. So I just said to them, hey, look, you're in a radio station. First thing, no smoking in my radio station. I don't smoke, none of my staff smoke. If you're gonna smoke outside, to my surprise, the officer in charge told them to stop smoking. And I said, quieten down, you're in a radio station now, not in a playground. You know, you, you've got to be quiet in here. And I will not be broadcasting with your guns here. You've got to take those guns out of this studio here and put them outside. I heard them clattering out and they put them in the passageway and then they came inside. I thought, well, that's all right. That's round one to me anyway, but <laughs> I'm going to lose this on points for sure. But nevertheless, I, I really felt inside quite elated that I'd sort of given them the, the, the idea that uh, I was in charge in the radio station. But I knew really they were... So Ginny, we're both forces broadcasters. BFBS has often put radio stations in literal war zones. Luckily, this kind of thing hasn't happened to either of us. No, but it's funny, you know, Ben, listening to Patrick's story. I do remember diving under the radio desk when I was working in Iraq. I was at the contingency operating base in Basra when halfway through my show, there was a rocket attack. And we were all told as soon as the alarm went off to get underneath the desk. But you know, Ben... Dead air is the broadcaster's worst enemy and uh, just hated it. So I lay on the floor. The song was coming to an end. Managed to get my hand up, felt across the faders. 
pressed the button and the song started. And what song was it? It was Raise the Lights, I'd Rather Be Somewhere Else, and that is no word of a lie, Ben. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. You couldn't make it up, could you? Fantastic. Seriously, though, with Patrick's story, it just shows how important local radio is to a community. And I think Patrick's quite proud of that. Maybe it was just another day in my life, in a broadcaster's life, something that I never expected would happen. But when I look back now, I think, wasn't I fortunate to be the man there that night doing this this job mm. not because people want to talk to me but simply because you know it, it's an experience in your life in in your broadcasting career you know my vocation was to be a broadcaster mm. I always wanted to be a broadcaster mm. and and here I had the chance and I did that job uh, that night that was asked of me and and you know I stayed on for the next 10 weeks apart from the last three days when it was horrendous, the bombings coming in and the bombs going out of Stanley with all the shells were just horrendous so I felt better to be at home with my children. You love it now, don't you? I just love the people, Ben. So generous, real grafters and just so passionate about their islands. I could go on forever about it, Ben, but I think that our time is just about up. Just one more, go on. Oh, well... I'll tell you what, Ben, seeing as we're looking at Liberation next week, here's a taster from my old next-door neighbour, Lisa Pole evans There's loads more stories like this coming up next week, by the way, but Lisa had a really special ninth birthday present just before Liberation. We were so relieved when the British were on their way. You know, that, that was great. We were just were desperate for that to be happening. Of course, we were worried about what was going to happen. But on my ninth birthday, which was pretty much a week before the end of the war, on the 8th of June, for... SBS guys that had been watching the settlement for three days, not on the door. <laughs> One guy's been back since. I told him he's the best birthday present I've ever had. But yeah, they knocked on the door and um, it, it, evening time because we'd had a bit of a birthday tea for me and all the people who had left the house. They'd been watching us, the whole settlement, for a few days. Saw all the people leaving the house so they thought they were fairly confident there were no Argentinians there. They thought we'll just knock on the door and see. And of course they come in and we were just so relieved to see them. Next time on Falklands 82 Stories from the South Atlantic. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers are reported to be flying white flags over Port Stanley. Len was looking out of the window, this was about nine o'clock at night, it was dark, and I heard on the World Service, 8,000 miles away, about the surrender happening 800 yards from where I was standing. If we can learn to find peace individually, there might come a time where we will cease to need to go to war. We're just small groups of guys that go off now and do horrific things and come back in the blink of an eye on a bloody aircraft and they are in Tesco's the next day. I think it's important that it's talked about. 40 years later, I have absolutely no animosity for the Argentinians. Most of the people on the island were kids. The government bears the responsibility, not the soldiers, not the 75-year-old ex-power from Northern Ireland now being dragged into court. I say to people, I can't tell you if you lost someone that it was worth doing. Only you can decide. But I ask you to go down and visit the Fort of Ireland and you'll see it's a living memorial to your guys. This is an original BFBS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS, The Forces Station, and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and Sean Harper, and our editor is Joe Sella Waldron. Listener.